Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Greetings. He is the one that we adore and serve. Amen? Amen? Today God has called us into His presence as His people, the subjects of His kingdom. We come today with hearts filled with desire to please Him, knowing that we are flawed by sin. We come praying that by hearing His word, that we would renew our minds and that God would give us new hearts. Amen? This is our daily prayer. Lord, make us new. Make us, make us like you, Lord. David, a man after God's own heart, a man who longed to please the Lord, came to understand fully how sinful he really was. You know, this can be a great gift to us to know how sinful we are. And God gave that gift to David. David saw that he was an adulterer and that he was a murderer and that this, even though he was still called a, God, a man after God's own heart. When he was confronted with his sin, that he had committed adultery and was responsible for even killing this woman's good and loyal and brave husband, his sin was ever before him. Sometimes when we see our sin and we see what we are, it makes it so much easier for us to see the goodness of God. Amen? Never are we more aware of how good he is than when he accepts us and receives us, knowing exactly who we are. David, not like Cain, though, David was pained by his, and he was humbled by his sin. When Cain saw his sin, it made him hate his brother and want to kill him. But David understand who needed to die because of his sin, and it wasn't anybody else. It was him. Amen? David, in Psalm 51, cried out to the Lord, and thank goodness he wrote it down. In fact, he didn't just write it down as words to remember, but he made a song out of it. Could you imagine living your life, Tim, singing a song about how horribly you've sinned against God and how you want God to forgive you? That's what David did, and he wrote it down, and for thousands of years, the people of God have been singing this song. I'll read the words for you from Psalm 51 as our call to worship today. And hear the pleading heart of a man who saw the ugliness of his sin and realized that he needed to change. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, Lord, blot out 
my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when thou speaks and clear when thou judges. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, O God. Blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me, O God, a clean heart, and renew in me a right spirit. Lord, cast me not away from your presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from my own blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure and design. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Isn't that a powerful, powerful prayer of repentance? May that be something that is ever on our minds as we consider our own sins. Let us pray. Oh, dear Lord, may our hearts be like this every day. Every day we're not murdering people. Every day we're not committing adultery, Lord. But there is none righteous, no, not one. We are all gone out of our way. We have not sought after you, Lord. We have not loved you. And we know this. And Lord, but according to your mercy, you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we come to you as your people today feeling uh, undeserving to be invited into your presence, but yet honored by you by saying, you're not just here, you're my son, you're my daughter. Come and sit in heavenly places with me. Today we come and we sit in a heavenly place with you, longing to be forgiven and knowing that you will and have forgiven us, Lord. Longing to be changed by your word and hungering and thirsting for bread from heaven. Feed us today so that we might be made more like you. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. standing with me for just a little bit longer as I read for you my text today from the book of 1 John chapter 1. But the title of my message today is one I hope that you kind of have stamped on your memory and in your life for the rest of your life. It's a, a message that as God was giving it to me really has been bearing a lot of good fruit. 
in my own personal life, and I definitely needed to hear this, and I know that many of you need to hear this as well. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is this. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would fill me. Lord, that you would speak to your people through me today, Lord, that we would hear your voice and your word and your truth, and that by it, Lord, we would be changed into your likeness. In Christ's name we pray. And the church said? Amen. You may be seated. I may need a little bit more of this if somebody gets a chance here in a minute. Once upon a time, a long, long ago, in a land far, far away, there lived a king named Saul. He was from a good family. He was head and shoulders taller than all the men in Israel. He was strong and he was good looking. The big family of a man named Israel had grown into a mighty nation, maybe even numbering in the millions in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt and for many, many years, but God brought them out, as we know, into a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. Now that they had land of their own and houses of their own and vineyards of their own, like all of the other nations, they began to compare themselves with the other nations around them. They had everything that those nations had. They had vineyards and houses and you know, lands to live in and a beautiful country of their own. But what they didn't have was a king. Led, protected, and brought into this land they called the promised land by God himself. They now wanted a king, the Bible tells us, like all the other nations had, to rule them and lead over them. And God said, no, you don't. And they said, oh, yeah, we do. King's a great thing. Look at him. Look how great it is what these other nations had. They have pageantry and the king dresses up and they have a palace and it gives us such pride in our country we want it god had told them through their prophet samuel this might seem like a good idea everybody say good idea but it was not this was evidence of the rejection of god this desire echoed something that happened way back at the dawn of time when god had made the very first man and woman adam and eve God walked and talked with them in the garden. He took them to green pastures and the still waters of Eden, and he loved them and he talked with them. And God had set only one small prohibition for them there. Everybody remember what they weren't allowed to do? Anybody? We've talked about this many times before. That's right. They were not allowed to eat of a tree. What's the name of that tree? That's right. You guys are smart. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam and Eve ate of that tree, sin entered into the whole world and death came 
into the world too. Man chose to know good, and he chose to know evil, but not to know God. He would rather figure out what he wants to do on his own. I can figure out for myself what's good and what's evil. I don't need God to lead me, and so he chose that. That's what went wrong. That's what brought all of the sorrow and pain and death. And this is at the heart of our brokenness. It's been several years since I preached this, but you might remember it. There's the good way, there's the evil way, and then there's the God way. Now, we often find it much easier to understand why we should not do evil or sinful things like murder, adultery, lying, and all that, right? But what we have the most trouble with, many of us, many of God's people, most of us have more trouble not doing heinous, horrible, obvious sins but what we have trouble is, is that we follow after things that seem to be good. Things that are in and of themselves clean and lovely and seem like good ideas. We often follow after good when the sum total of Christianity is that we should not. Any man whose pursuit of his life is to achieve personal righteousness is going to fail in his pursuit. It cannot be achieved. Only Christ can change a sinner's heart. People oftentimes, they just say, I just want to know. You need to tell me exactly what to do, and I can do that. And God's Word says, no, even if you do everything right, you'll do it for the wrong reasons. Because at the core of your being, your heart is corrupt. Even the good deeds you do. In fact, the Bible says God doesn't even hear the prayers of the sinners. They pray, they do good, and even their good deeds are evil in the eyes of God. Why? Because their heart is corrupt. Good ideas are not always God ideas. For example, in the story of Cain and Abel, it wasn't that Cain refused to give sacrifice to God. Remember the story? Did he say, I'm not going to church? Did he say, I'm not offering a sacrifice to the Lord? Is that what he said? He said, no. What I'd like to do is I'm a farmer and I raise crops. I'd just like to bring some of my crops to the Lord. Isn't that good? And God said, yeah, that's good, but that's not what I want. He grew crops. He wanted to give God some of them and instead of the animals that he didn't raise. His anger, though, when God pointed out his sin, when God did not like his good idea, what did it do to him? It led him to hate and to kill his brother Abel. Now, why did he do that? You know why he did that, Laura? Because when somebody else does what God says and you don't, what does it point out about what you're doing? Well, you're wrong. Cain wanted to be better than Abel. This should never be our goal, folks. To never be our goal to be better than anybody. Cain wanted to be better than Abel. The roots of the love of self, his own pride and conceit, his self-justifying spirit bore the fruit of murder. That's what it does. His good idea was rejected by God, and instead of dying to himself and surrendering to the will of God, he wanted to kill his brother, who was following God. Abel's godly righteousness made Cain look bad. And so Cain hated him. And he killed him. That's what we did. In the story of Joshua and Jericho, or even Gideon and the Midianites, what God told them to do, it completely defied human reason. You're going to go to the promised land, and you're going to take this big city with walls so wide you can have a chariot race on them, and you're going to do it without a siege tool. You're just going to walk around it. This was not a good idea, was it? Brother Vernot? Now, 
I know one's Howard and one's Tim. So are you Tim or Howard? All right, Howard, is, come on. Is this a good strategic idea? Let's walk around it, see what happens. Let's be real quiet. Let's not even talk. Let's walk around it every day for days. Not a real good military strategy, right? It was not a good idea. In fact, some people might have even said, this is evil. We're going to walk around the walls. They're going to drop rocks on our head. They're going to kill us. They're going to do horrible things to us. This is dumb. Don't do this. God said, that's what I want you to do. And we know what happened, right? Gideon, the same thing. You've got thousands and thousands of men, and you have to fight 200,000 Midianites. So what are you going to do? Well, you've got too many people. They were already outnumbered 30,000 to 200,000, and God told them they had too many people, and God whittled it down to 300 people. Is this good military strategy? Is this seem prudent and, and wise and smart? Absolutely not. But was it God's way? Everybody say, yes, it was. Here's how you're going to take Jericho. Here's how you're going to defeat the Midianites. These were not good ideas. They were God ideas. The God way is always better than the good way. So now we come here to the story of King Saul and the Amalekites and King Agag. I mean, I know the Bible wasn't written in English, but what a great name for a king we should hate. Agag. I mean, I almost need a napkin, you know? King Agag, right? And I, I, I hope today that King Agag makes us gag when we realize who he is. Saul gets a good idea. He has good intentions, not understanding that God doesn't need our good ideas. We need to follow what God's word says to the letter as much as we can. That's why we study it. We don't come together every week to be smart. We don't come together every week so we can prove how much we know. We come together because we say, are we doing what God says? When God smote the, the sweet young man who was just trying to steady the ark and killed him, they could have been mad at God, but what did they do? Let's get the book out. We, we've obviously done something wrong. Let's find out what God says. And when they figured out that they were doing it wrong, what did they do? They tried to make it right. That's what we're supposed to do. Remember, God, people of God, we might have good ideas on how things ought to be done, but our ideas are never better than God's. When God's kindness leads us, leads our dark hearts to believe that we are wise and good, so much so that we are more wise and good than God, then we stop following God and we are led by our own self-deluded goodness and a self-righteousness. And I'm telling you, it's not what we want. So what makes us like this? Well, in the verses just following our text, I read from 1 John, what I'm going to lay out here is something that God has just been really dealing with me about and and I really think that if we can grasp this together today, guys, we can kill the king. Everybody say, kill the king. Now, not kill the king with a capital K. Kill the king with a little k. In 1 John, our text is in 1 John 1, but in 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to read to you something that John does for us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He looks at us and our sinfulness that we are, and he divides up our sins into three parts. You guys remember this? I'll read it for you. Now, first, I'm going to ask you, how many of you understand that we are not to love the world? Neither the things that are in the world, right? Nobody here would dare defy the truth of these words, I hope. I hope it's, it's okay. I, no one here would say, you know, it's okay to love the world. It's all right. 
Robinettes, that's what we do. I mean, no one here is going to, that's not going to be your, your life theme, right? We love the world and we love all that stuff in it, right? But do we live our lives looking at and loving the world and the things in it more than we love one another and God? Well, I wish we didn't, but we, we actually still do that. But, so, but what I know and what you should know too is that even if you say it's so, you, you really do these things, even if maybe you're not, maybe not even the way that you think. So, so let's read these words, okay? Um, 1 John chapter 2, love not the world. If, if you have this memorized, you can say it with me. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. Now, this is not a scripture anybody really argues over today as if somehow maybe it really doesn't say that, right? It's not one of the things, we, we don't, it's not like the doctrine of the Trinity or of Calvinism. It's a pretty plain, pretty obvious, pretty straightforward declarative in God's word about we're not to love the world, right? Now, when we think of the world, we might think of something like the great allegorical scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read this, it does a great job of this. Vanity Fair is gleaming and glowing with the shiny temptations, drawing our cravings toward them. We see this thing that we want, lust of the eye. Everybody say lust of the eye. We smell the savory smoke of its delicacies rising up and reaching inside of us and pulling us to the tables of this ungodly feast. Everybody say lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. Pilgrim's Progress gives us this picture. If you read it, he's, he's wanting to go. He's wanting, and, he's, and he, he knows he can't, and he shouldn't. And so he's guarding himself against the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. We know when it's time to turn our heads, and we know when it's time even really to hold our nose, right? Maybe right now is part of that with you. Maybe you can smell the barbecue in the back, and it, you're, you're wanting to focus on the sermon, but you just kind of need to hold your nose here for a minute and just listen. You might say to yourself, when you look at the world, we won't be enticed. They're not going to get us. We're going to turn this off and we're going to make sure this is not in our home. And we're going to cover our children's eyes and keep these things away from them. And that's good. But lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh, they'll never conquer us, we say. But the problem is, is that's only two out of three in the list. We may have a lust of the eye conference and we may have a lust of the flesh conference, but I don't ever recollect anybody having a pride of life conference. What's behind door number three, Johnny? <laughs> John, writing this here. We forget one of the most obvious things in the world. Everybody say, me. You know, we don't want to love the world. We don't want to love all that out there. We don't want to love all the things we look at and we want. But you know who in the world that we are okay loving? Me. And that's what we call the pride of life. We are in the world. We forget that behind door number three is the king, really, of all of our difficulties. We forget the pride of life. We're seldom reticent to warn others to protect ourselves from sins brought on by the lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, but we take little precaution against the pride of life. A few weeks ago, you remember I said this, we work on this, but the pride of life is like this little pet dog we carry around and we pet on the head. And, and you know what? Man, we have a good family. 
We're nice people. We're not like those people. I mean, and we do this and we don't even see it as sinful. But God's word says it's ugly and destructive and it is part of sin. But we don't think it is. Denying yourself something that you want is one thing. Offering up the pride of life as a burnt offering to God is quite another. Dying to temptation is something we have good practice at, but dying to self is nearly impossible. A man can pluck out his own eye if he has a problem with lust of the eye. A man can cut off his hand if he has a problem with lust of the flesh. But the problem is, with the pride of life, you have to be able to reach inside your own chest and pull your heart out. What, is, what, what are you supposed to do? What's the Bible say we're supposed to do daily? We're supposed to do what? Die. The pride of life is king of the sins, folks. Lord of our lasciviousness and license, a legion of inner rebellion stands against us and God, but it must too kneel to Christ. Amen? God is leading us today to kill the king. The pride of life is what was at the center of Saul's most destructive sin, the one that killed his kingdom, himself, his valiant and beautiful son Jonathan, and most of the descendants that were in his family. And the funny thing is, is once Saul saw what was happening, instead of repenting when he had the opportunity, what did he do? When he could have driven the dagger into the heart of the pride of his own life, what did he do? He sought to save it. But what do we know? What did Jesus say? He that seeks to save his life shall... And that's exactly what he did when he was confronted with his sin. He sought to save it. I'm going to work through this story. Hang with me for a little bit. I really think this is important. Stay with me. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. And now, therefore, hearken to the voice of my words. I want you to go to Amalek and I want you to kill them all, right? You heard it. We read it in our readings today. Don't spare any of them. Kill Amalek. Utter destroy all that they have. Spare them not. Slay man and woman and infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel. Kill them all. But did he do it? Everybody say, he didn't do it. Why didn't he do it? He had a better idea. Here Saul did not want men, he did what men do when they think they do what they do for God from their own strength. He numbered Israel. He's going to go and fight Israel. The first thing he does is count, how many men do I have? Right? What happened to David when he did that later? What did God do? God sent a plague. You think you need enough men to do this job because you think you're doing it in your own strength and you've counted them. God killed, I believe, and I don't remember the exact number, but I think 80,000 men. You, you want to know if you've got enough to accomplish what really I'm going to accomplish? Now, in the chapter right before this, the amazing thing is God had taught Saul through his own son that this was ridiculous but what did he do he numbers Israel anyway in the chapter before this Jonathan actually he was at Michmash and he sees all the Philistines over there and he gets so riled up about him you remember this he goes I'm gonna go fight him by myself and his armor bearer is like Jonathan you're crazy you shouldn't do that and Jonathan goes is it harder for God to save by just a few of us or do we all have to get involved does somehow the number of us matter a whole lot to God right you guys remember this 
And he goes over there and he fights the Philistines. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing. So here were his words. He says, is it harder for God to save by many or by few? Jonathan understood in 1 Samuel chapter 24 what God had done. He understood that this was wrong, that we need to trust in God and not our own strength. So Saul came to the city of Amalek. He laid wait in the valley. We know what happens. He, he defeats them in battle. But instead of doing what God says, he kills everybody but one. Everybody say, but one. I mean, come on. That's, isn't that mostly what God said? Verse 8 says, He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. I mean, he did really, really, really good. He almost did what God commanded, but he had a better idea, one that would give God even more honor. And this is when our sin gets us in trouble. God's word says, do this, this, and this, and we go, no, 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 no. It won't work if I do that. If I do it the way God's word says it, if we, if we really go about and we excommunicate this person, it's going to make them feel like we don't like them. It's going to alienate them. It's going to make them, uh, they'll never come back. What does God's word say? You must do this thing. Why? Because you want them back. It says you do this to save them. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you'd think if, you, if this person, this is not my kind of idea. We should be loving and kind and accepting and affirming and give people time. That's Mark Robinette. That would be my idea. But God says, no, that's not what you do. If you love people, this is what you do. And even though I don't like it, what do I have to do? I have to do that. God's word says, to, I mean, I can go, there's a, everything God's word says. If you look at it, sometimes you go, you know, I don't really think that makes a lot of sense. I kind of have a little better idea on this. Folks, if you think like that, rather than being terrified that your own ideas are stupid, like Saul's was here, you're going to get yourself in trouble when you get creative and you get better ideas than God. Verse 9, Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep. I mean... The best ones. I mean, when we, with all the rules of sacrifice are we want animals that are healthy and they're strong and they don't have blemishes. I mean, this will be a great idea, Brother Chris. Let's take these really good animals. Now, we're going to kill them eventually. So technically, we're really not doing anything wrong. You know, honestly, when you hear this story, if God wasn't telling the story, you, would, you might go, you know what, I think Samuel's being harsh. I think, I think whoever that's saying these bad things about, about Saul here, I think they're really going over the top. But who's saying them? God. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me. He, wasn't, he was following what he thought was good, right? Not following God's instructions. He hath not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. This is what it should do when we sin, or when we see others sin. It should cause us to grieve. But we can't just let it go. He wasn't following after evil, as we will see. Saul didn't refuse to fight and kill the Amalekites. He did that. He didn't even plan to let any of the animals live. He just wanted to let the good ones live for a little while longer until he could offer them. And sacrifice. Killing them would it well it would it was good, but saving the best, that would be even better. That's what the good plan was that he had in his mind. Now the amazing thing about this, let's read in verse 12. Samuel met him, and Samuel came out to Saul, and the first words out of Saul's mouth was 
complimenting and lifting up himself. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. What does the Bible say? Every man is right in his own. He didn't even know he did anything wrong. Or at least he wasn't admitting it here. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He was, it was important to him that people knew. And of course, that Samuel knew how good he was. When we follow the good way, we often think we've obeyed God's command. We often feel justified in following the good way of our imagination. And we also do another thing. The next thing that we do, verse 14, when he confronts him with his sin, he says, okay, you said you performed the command, but I'm hearing sheep here. And this appears to me like you're not obeying it. And he's like, oh, and then he starts using what we call distancing language. They, they got these animals from the Amalekites and they, the people spared them. What is he doing? Is he, is he owning what happened here or is he putting blame on someone else? That's what the pride of life does. Self-preservation. Oh, well, yeah, if anything went wrong, it wasn't us. It was them. But the rest, he then moves away from his distancing language, but the rest of the animals, he moves from they, we utterly destroyed them. Once again, it's what the pride of life does. It blames others and continues to self-justify. They saved them. They wanted to sacrifice them, but we destroyed them. I'm good. Someone else is to blame for the bad things I just did. Don't you see how good I am, Samuel? And that's exactly what Saul is doing. That's what the pride of life does. Points out, listen, I, I may have done something, but don't you understand that what the people, those people did is worse? That's what, that's what we do. Samuel said to Saul, stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said, say on. Samuel said, when you were little in your own sight, were you not made the head over the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee to be king. Can you see where God is taking him here? He's saying, you were little. How did you become king in the first place? Now you're king. Now you've got better ideas than God has. But you were once little in your own sight. Don't you remember when they went to anoint him king? He goes and hides off in the stuff, they have to go pull him out of the baggage that was in his train of being king. And they're like, where is he at? And he's hiding. He's scared. He was little in his own sight. He's thinking, like, this is crazy that I'm becoming king. And God's reminding of this. When you were little in your own sight back then, is he little in his sight now? No, he's not. God calls out the sin for what it was. It was the pride of life. By reminding Saul, there was a time when Saul understood better who he was. He was little once in his own sight. Often God begins to use us. We then forget how little we were and how weak we were. When Philistines start falling to the right and the left, we start saying, look at me and look at what I do. As soon as the Red Sea parts, when we raise up our little stick, we forget who we are and we begin to believe somehow that we're big and that we have power we don't. Folks, Moses had no power to, to split any sea. And the reason why when he thought his stick had power and he whacks the rock at Horeb, God says, well, you can't go in. Why? You're starting to believe in a stick. What's the difference between you and some idolater? I said, speak to the rock. So the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, go destroy the sinners of the Amalekites, fight them until they be consumed. Wherefore, why did you not obey God's voice? But you flew upon the spoil, and you did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even after God makes Saul's sin very clear, he lays it out for him. Of course, at first he didn't do anything, but now he has. 
He seeks to justify himself by blaming others about his role. The pride of life is not content enough to do wrong and get away with it. We will work to make our evil deeds look good if we can do it. This is one clear way to know when you're dealing with the pride of life. Now listen to Saul in verse 20. He's already been told he's been wrong. He's already been shown he's wrong. And here Saul comes again. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I have done exactly what God told me to do. And I brought King Agag. I think it's funny that he, in telling what he did was right, he lists what he did wrong. I've done exactly what God wants me to do, and I've killed all the Amalekites, and look, I brought this guy. What did God tell him to do? Kill all of them but Agag? And I really think God gives us a story in the Old Testament because we, like Saul, we see all the sins, but we don't see the king of the sins. You see what I'm saying? I believe Agag is a representative of the pride of life that is taught to us in God's word. I think it's a giant memorial in history to remind us that the pride of life stands right in our presence beside us. And we're like, look what I've done. I've done the right thing. Look how good I am. And our sin is standing right here. And that's what was going on. So he repeats it. Yeah, I brought Agag the king. We've utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. But yeah, yeah, the people, they took sheep and oxen and, and they did these things which should have been destroyed. I understand that to sacrifice to the Lord in Gilgal because we we, we're just going to do something better. He's still defending himself. Interestingly enough, it seems that Saul is willing to face part of a sin, the saving of the animals, but now he understands the error of his way here. But somehow he's blind to the very worst of it. He dares say... I mean, do you think it was more important people or animals? I mean, really? Verse 22, Samuel said, Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken unto God better than the fat of rams. And he says this in verse 23, and I'm telling you once again, if, if some person said this to you and it wasn't, God, I think you would be mad about it. He says, rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. Thou hast rejected thee from being king. Now, you have to understand what Saul did wasn't really bad. Do you understand this? What Saul did was really pretty good. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it, was it bad like uh, committing adultery and having somebody killed to cover it up? Now, that's bad, right? If it wasn't God speaking to Saul here in this verse, you might be tempted to say Samuel is going over the top. Really? I mean, because I was going to kill the animals later on, somehow you're accusing me of doing wrong? I mean, oh, it means I'm an, an idolater? Uh, it's like witchcraft? I mean, seriously? Can, can you hear your own pride saying this? I can. I can hear mine going, I mean, come on, God. Really? I mean, all I was going to do was kill him later, and all I saved was one, and he's right here. What's he going to get away? Like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm in rebellion. I'm an idolater, and, and it's witchcraft. Come on. And that was his attitude. Why? Why was his attitude that way? Because at the heart of all, the pride of life ruled Saul. Even Saul's eventual confession, we do not hear the dying of a man to self, in his confession of his sin, we hear the pride of life negotiating for himself. 
This sin cost him everything. And the pride of life was trying to get him to take out a loan for more. Because this was going to hurt. His pride was going to get hurt a little bit more. And he wanted to just, can I sue this? Can we make this better? In the next few verses in which the pride of life, you see it alive and well. And it takes complete charge of Saul. When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, though, brings forth death. The pride of life wants all of you and will not be satisfied until it has you. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I sinned. I was afraid. The people made me do it. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin. Turn again with me that we may worship God. This is st- he seems to be repenting. He seems to be making it right. But folks, he's not. He's trying to find a way to make his sin not be so humiliating. And for the pride of life to die, humiliation is on the plate for all of us. You see, when we, God resists the who? He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. What, was, what could Saul have done right here? Humbled himself. What did David do in his prayer in Psalm 51? Did he ask for his kingdom? Did he ask to be honored? Or did he just say, Lord, break my bones, but then let me rejoice. Lord, do anything. Just don't take what? Take the kingdom? No. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. God, give me a new heart. Wash me. Make me not a liar. That's what David prays. And Saul goes, here, here's what you're going to do. You're going to forgive me. That's what you're going to do. And it's all going to be okay. Well, it wasn't okay. Verse 20, because see, God knew his heart. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with thee. Thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. It sounds like he's repenting, but we know he's not. You'll find out here in a second he's not when you hear him begin to continue to negotiate. And Samuel turned about to go away, and Saul laid hold on the skirt of his mantle, and he rent it. Now, my trip to Israel pays off right here. Do you know that in this, this is an incredible biblical thing. You you might miss this, but do you guys know that that, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the Bible, and some, some of it we miss because of the culture, but they had very particular embroidery around the edges of their garments, and they could literally he take and press the edge of their garment in wet clay. It was so specific to their family that someone could go, and it would be like bringing a check. Heath, Heath is giving me $100 here. He wrote $100. Do you see the print of the embroidery of him? It is, it is just like a signet ring. Sometimes they would send their signet ring and they didn't have it on them. They could just take the embroidery from their outfit and they just squeeze it into clay. Did you know this? I didn't know this. So there's a lot in the Bible. We don't have time to go into about the hem of garments. You know, Jesus, the woman's touching the hem of his garment. She's accessing his authority and who he is. And here we have him. He's taking it. And I'm telling you, this is not a, a desperate accident. No, he is angry. And so he grabs it, he rips it, he tears it. If you remember, what does David do? David lets um, Saul know he was there. What does he do? How does he do it? He lets him know by taking what? A piece of his, a piece of that. I, this, is, this is how you know it was me. This is how I know I was with the king. Only, only the king has this. Okay? You might miss it. 
anger. He tears this. And in his response, you might think, this is, at this point, the guy is, is begging for forgiveness. No, he's not. He's angry and he rips it. And, 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 and Samuel looks at him and he said, just what you've done to me, God has rent the kingdom from you. It was a dramatic scene. Saul wanted desperately to figure out a way to save face. He was not concerned with his sin as much as how it made him look. That's what the pride of life is. Folks, if sin makes you look like a sinner, you're, you're doing good. If you can make your sin even make it look like you're righteous, you're dealing with the pride of life that's out of control. Samuel said, The Lord hath rent the kingdom from Israel from you, the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and have given it to a neighbor that is better than you. And I'm telling you, this, this, was, this was Samuel going, Woo! On the pride of life. I'm not only taking a few, but I'm giving it to someone better than you. Because you know what Saul thought? He was better than everybody. That's at the heart of the pride of life. We don't want anyone better than us. Cain, you know what? That Abel, he thinks he's so righteous. He thinks he's so better than me. He's not better than me. I'm hard too. And I do good things. And why does it nobody notice? And he kills him. That's what happened. That's what happened. When our pride of life is under assault, we get furious. But folks, it's got to die. He goes on in verse 29, The strength of Israel will not lie, and he will not repent. He's not a man. And then he said, Oh, I have sinned. I have sinned. But could you honor me before the people? Before the elders of my people and before Israel. Yeah, you're right. You got me. I, I, I'm guilty. I, but could you honor me in front of everyone? Are these the words of a man dying to self or a man concerned about what people thought about him? Return again. Worship that I may worship with you. It's the very most worst moment in the life of Saul. The very defining moment of who he was and why God rent the kingdom from him. He cared so much more for honor before the elders and before the people of Israel than he cared about God and about doing right. Verse 31, Samuel turned again to Saul and Saul worshipped the Lord. Samuel knew after what had just happened that there was no hope for Saul. He understood that Saul kept Agag alive, but he, because he was a king. You see, Saul says, I'm a king, and this guy's a king, and kings should be respected and honored and treated better. You don't just kill them. We can do something better. Because why? Who was a king? Saul was. He was it was a way of self-pride to not kill the king. I mean, it, I mean, if you go around killing leaders of country and you're leaders of a country, what are you going to bring on yourself? Keeping him alive was a symbol of who Saul was. Once little in his own sight, he was now a somebody. He was a king. And to make the point of how ugly it was to value the, the post that God gives you more than the God who gives it to you. Samuel does something we should etch on our brains today. And this is rough. And this is graphic. And this is R-rated. Samuel says, bring the king Agag to me. Agag came delicately, thinking the bitterness of death was past. Now, I, I, we don't have all day, but Samuel was a sweet, 
beautiful, lovely boy and man. He was gentle. He was kind. He was not David. He was not Saul. He's not like anybody in the Bible. He never hurt anybody. He was kind to people. He was loving. He was sweet. Yes, he brought the word of God. But there's, not, there's nothing in Scripture to accuse him of being hard and harsh with people. And God takes the sweet, lovely Samuel who had a beautiful walk with God and who shared the word. And he has Samuel do something so graphic and so horrifying that I want you to get it on your brain because what God did in this story was put here so that we would know to kill the king of the pride of life. The sweet son of Hannah and Elkanah who was raised the Nazarite in the house of God, not even to touch a dead anything. We read the Nazarite stuff last week. Not even to, if his mom or dad or brother or sister died. He can't even go near them. He's so, so what does this boy raised the Nazarite, separated from God, what's he do? He doesn't just get near a dead one. He makes somebody dead. And as he's killing the man, he pronounces upon him, as thy sword have made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And he didn't just have him killed. He didn't just cut off his head. It says Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord. And folks, we're not we're talking, he cut a human being in pieces with a sword. Wham, 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 wham. Blood is all over him. The people are horrified. They've never seen anything like that in their whole life, especially not from sweet Samuel. But what was Samuel doing? He was telling us that the king must die. God must be obeyed, our souls. Can you stay with me for a few, five more minutes? I know this is, this is tough stuff, but man, I think this can bear fruit in all of our lives. I can't go through all this. I'm, I'm going to end with something, but I, I'm, going to tell, I'm going to point this out. If you look in 1 John 1, 5, my original text, you will see that it says if you walk in darkness, you don't know God. And people know this, right? If you, if you, if you live like an ungodly person, right? But what he does here, and many people miss it, okay? The message we've heard of him, I declare in you, God's light, in him is no darkness. If we say that we have no fellowship, we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not the truth. But if we walk in light. So we understand we're not supposed to be living like wretched sinners. We got that, right? But the, but the sin that he mentions next, I think most of us miss. He mentions all this stuff about living ungodly, but what does he focus on last, which is actually more powerful, more potent? Yeah, of course, don't commit adultery. Of course, don't kill people. Of course, don't be a lying, cheating, stealing scumbag. Of course! But then he says, let me tell you about another sin. It's worse than that. It's the pride of life. It's when we say we have no sin. He doesn't just say it. In case you miss it, I'll read the whole thing. He says, he, after he says, if you're a sinner, do you know, God will forgive you, but you can't, live, you can't live like that, okay? He says, and then he mentions this other sin, and this is a sin you, this is the sin of the pride of life right here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just in case you thought he was just reiterating about confessing the bad things above, he repeats what he means. Then the next verse when he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And the word is not in us. 
Now I'm going to close for you from something we read and I'm going to try to, I'm going to show you how to identify the king of uh, the pride of life in your life, okay? Paul does it like nobody does it. Take your family through this. Walk through this yourself and I'll try to close with this. It's in our readings, but I'll try to go through it. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, read this with your family. He says, we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and we rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no, no, no confidence in the flesh. If any man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have more reason than he does. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He's better than anybody you know. He comes from a better family. He has a better education. He's got a better lifestyle. He's more righteous than you. He's smarter than you. He's got better education. He's more well-placed than you. He's from the same tribe as King Saul. Benjamin. Right? What's he doing? He, he just erected the pride of life. And now what Paul does for you is he takes a, a sword and he cuts it in pieces. He said, you know, those things that were gained to me. You see, we think they're important. People ought to know all the great stuff about us. No, no, they don't. In fact, the Bible says the more great stuff you have going for you, the less you have going for your walk with God. Do you know this? What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. So all I, I, good family, good education, good living, all this. This is a problem. Why is it a problem? Because it stands up and says, look at me. I'm good. I'm lovely. I'm right. Don't mess with me. Look how, don't, how dare you? He said, I count them but loss. Yea, Dallas, I count the things but loss for the excellency. I rate them in the value of animal potty. Okay, I'll try not to be... As the Bible says, dung, as in waste, as in dog doo-doo. That's what he says about his education and his family and, his, and how good he can be and all that. All that is just, it's waste, refuge, to be avoided. It stinks, it's disgusting. That's what he says. Why? I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Why? Because I don't want to be found in Christ having my own goodness. Why? Because you don't have any. That's why. I don't want to have my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. Wow. Paul lays this out, and I'll, I'll, I'll skip down because I know I've been preaching for a long time. You know, when I tell my children they're acting like fools, I'm not calling them fools. I'm saying, you're not a fool. Why are you acting like one? When I bring a Christian and I go, you're doing this wicked, ungodly thing. I'm not, I don't think that we have wicked, ungodly people here in the sense that, the, that I think everyone belongs to Christ here. But when we act like the wicked, when we stroke the, the pride of life, when we live like this, we live like them and we, don't, we shouldn't. 
They said, you've not so learned Christ. You're not like the Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their minds, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in in their heart. That's not you. So if it's not you, don't live like that. That's the admonition of the Apostle Paul. May we today go, oh God, how has the pride of life destroyed my relationships with people? How has it caused problems in this church? How has it caused problems in my marriage and with my children? How has it made me not be able to lead my family? Do I care more about me and my ego and what people think of me than I care about doing what God's word says, which is to come and die and esteem others better than yourself? Why should you esteem others better than yourself? Because they're better, that's why. If we could only see it. Oh, may God speak to us today and help us to kill the king today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me the strength and the courage to even hear this again, Lord, because it has crushed me in so many ways. Lord, I just want so much, Lord, to not live in my own pride, but I want to, I want to do what your word says we're supposed to. I want to die daily. I don't want me to live and people to like me and people to think well of me. I want to be like the Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead, but yet I live. It's Christ in me that lives. That's what I want, not me. Oh, Lord, help me help us all today to put to death the king, to kill the king, the pride of life that exalts itself above you as a false God. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.